0: Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord, always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. So this is
1: a continuation of a number of thoughts that we began last week. Our church is moving into a series, uh, time of evangelism and mission And so just as we saw last week in Philippians 2, we discussed the grounding for Christian evangelism. And we noticed precisely how Paul gave the Philippians a number of instructions and commands how they were to keep their heart as the motivation for evangelism being centered upon Jesus Christ that evangelism and Christian mission, and I'm going to use those phrases interchangeably today, both evangelism and reaching out, sharing the gospel is another phrase that is is helpful, those things must be done not only for the glory of Christ, but by the power of Christ. And so today what Paul is doing in this reading is he's providing instruction and then testimony of how he himself was able to be persevered or, or, or uh, per- preserved by God as he was doing his apostolic mission. As Paul was carrying out his apostolic mission, he faced trials and plenty. He faced ease and, and hardship. And he describes, after commanding them to do these things, he describes how God caused him to do this. One of the things I would direct you to in your bulletin is a very interesting idea which I've done is the verse of the day if you've never noticed this is is usually from the reading and it's the verse that I believe emphasizes the the idea or central thought of what I want to bring out from the reading in the sermon. And precisely this idea that we've been looking at, we saw it last week, that God is at work within you. Fear and tremble. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For God is at work in you, both to will, that is to have the desire to obey him, and to work. And so we looked at the series, if you were here during the time where we were reviewing the book of Galatians, how the Christian church has a unique stamp or a unique character that makes it completely unique in all of the world and every religion beside it. And it is this particular mark. It is that each is to bear his burden and that no one is to be exclusively focused on their own needs but also the needs of his, of his neighbor. And so, interestingly, when we think about this verse, Philippians 4.13, in the context of how it's used in the Christian church today, if you've ever heard this verse, it's almost exclusively used as a verse that you will take to yourself and you will meditate on and use as a a weapon, which you ought to do with the Word of God. But it is used to prop up self-determination and self-effort in applying the grace of the Holy Spirit. Yet interestingly enough, when read in the context of all of Paul's writings, both to the Galatians and the Philippians, he's talking about a union of Christian mission. That is, he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, yet it was kind of you to share the trouble. He's saying he's able, by the grace of God, that God has been preserving him and God has been providing for him, and yet, even though he was able to do it, it was kind of them to join in. You see that, how that fits in with, with his instructions to the church? Not You cannot be focused on your own needs, but must also be meeting the needs of others. And this has to do primarily with the funding and fueling of the mission of Christ's church. And so, I want to look at how Paul commends the Philippians for their Christian partnership. That is to say, he, he gives them praise for the unique thing that they did in this time of the early church, how they partnered with Paul. Even though he was being supplied by the grace of God, they were the ones, I hope that you'll see, who God worked through. And if you remember what he said in chapter two last week, how God is at work within you, both to will and to work, God met Paul's needs and he met them through the Philippians. And and I believe that's the vision what Paul is trying to remind the Philippians of and then cause them to to receive such that it would never be lost in the Philippian uh, church in their city. So I wanna look at three specific things. First, his commandments to them, his instructions to them on how they are to keep their hearts and their minds. Uh, I made a joke, I think, last week about how the Christian faith Uh, really is brainwashing. It is is brainwashing because everything is brainwashing. All communication is an attempt to get you to think the way that the communicator is asking you to to hear them in. And so all all faiths are brainwashing faiths. All faiths are heart-claiming faiths. And Christianity has no exclusion. It is attempting, Paul is attempting to tell them how to think. And he makes no... He makes no uh, concern about that. He's not afraid of being accused of trying to shape their thoughts. Indeed, he commands them what to think about. And then he moves from commanding them how to direct their heart, how to shape their loves, and how to control their thoughts and thought systems... And then he gives an example of how he was able to do that in his apostolic mission. First, he gives them a command, and then he tells them to imitate him, and then he reminds them of how he lived among them. And so this idea of Paul finding contentment in the midst of trial and in the midst of difficulty uh, is, is a, he's promoting this to the Philippians. He then gives a testimony how God was faithful to him. And by extension, he's telling the Philippians, God will be faithful to you. And then he commends them for what I'm calling the rare jewel of, of charity for mission. That is to say, he says to them that no other church participated with him. And I want you to see how even to this day, there is so much focus and effort in the Christian church on herself in a way that's not fitting and that is is too exclusionary and that we as a church although we have excelled at this year after year as we begin a new season in evangelism I want to call you personally to consider what you might do to participate in that mission not just in giving your money but that does is certainly included so Having come near the end of his letter, Paul begins to give his final remarks, the things that are on his heart, to close the letter. He reminds them of the grace of God in their midst and then gives them two instructions, really one, but 2 it's a twofold instruction, keep your heart and keep your mind. He asks them to consider how to rejoice in the Lord without regard to the circumstance. He doesn't say rejoice in the Lord, whether it's going good or ill. He says rejoice in the Lord and commands it again. He says, and again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Some translations say for the Lord is at hand. Though the Philippians are from time to time facing trials, there is always reason to rejoice in Christ. In the book of in the book of Hebrews, the writer commends them for rejoicing in the Lord even though suffering the loss of their property. Likewise, with the Philippians, they were rejoicing in the Lord even though they were giving extravagantly and giving sacrificially. Paul is commending rejoicing in the Lord no matter what season. He's commanding it. He's, he's saying it is good to do and it is right for us to do so. So he then says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. When Christians rejoice or take joy in Christ, when they rejoice in Christ, despite their circumstances, they demonstrate to the world around them the supreme pleasures of Jesus Christ over and against the temporary loss of material goods or even the temporary blessing of material goods. That is to say, if Christians rejoice in all circumstances, they are testifying that Christ is greater than my sorrow, and in the midst, if I rejoice in the midst of blessings or, or prosperity, so to speak, I'm testifying Christ is even greater than my joy. As in, if I, if I root my joy ultimately in whether I'm rising or falling, whether I'm ascendant in life or descendant in life, whether I've you know, achieved all of my goals or whatnot, or if my life is a wreck, if I'm rejoicing in Christ, I'm testifying that he is greater than sorrow and greater than earthly gain. And this is what he commands them to do. Rejoice in the Lord always, not with regard to change in circumstance, And then he tells them to conduct themselves in a certain manner. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, of course, he is not saying to take on the reasoning of the world, but rather they are to live in a way that might be accurately described as reasonable. That is, able to reason, able to to make sense of in the light of their Christian faith. Why should they do this? Because the Lord is at hand. Christ's nearness, that is his presence among them, should be deciding and instructing how they live. That is, as Christians, we live with an awareness of the nearness of Christ. Christ said, wherever two or three are gathered, there I am in their midst. That means that when Christians meet together from day to day, house to house, especially on the Lord's day, Christ is present among them. Christ indeed is present right now. Among us, and we have to live with an awareness of his presence. We must be reasonable, we must have our conduct as excellent among all because the Lord is here, and the Lord is watching now this isn't to be done saying, "The Lord is watching, I better not screw up it's to be done with a di- an understanding of the dignity of the Christian calling. You have been called to life by Jesus Christ. You've not only been made after the image of Adam, you will be made again after the image of your Redeemer, and you will see him, and indeed, even now he is in front of you. He is before you. Therefore, live in a reasonable way. And because of the Lord's presence, Paul then gives them commands how they ought to keep their heart and their mind. When you're tossing and turning at night, worrying about what will happen tomorrow or whether you will get that promotion or or lose the job or or whether or not you will find a spouse someday, or whether you will achieve your goals in your career, or whether you can pay your bills, at night the Lord is at hand. He is present, therefore, verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. Christ himself is near you. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. Uh, Paul, Paul is directing them to express their needs before their maker. That is to say, they are to give voice to their concerns. They are to take the tumult of the heart and translate it into petition and supplication. That word supplication is so beautiful. It's such a wonderful word because it, it means I'm petitioning or I'm making a request to God and I know that I already have favor in his court. If you have ever watched a court drama, I love it, uh, when especially this happens in, um, in, in England, they, you know, the, the attorneys, as they begin to speak, they say, your honor, and may it please the court. Have you ever heard that phrase? Christians are able to bring their request to the maker of the universe, who has an infinitely powerful gavel, And his word is not checked. His word stands. They are able to come into the high court of heaven and say to their God, Lord, I'm really worried about my job tomorrow. I'm really scared about my wife's pregnancy. I don't know if we're going to have this child to turn. I don't know if I'm going to be able to help this person in their walk with the Lord. We are to bring those concerns straight to God. And then he says, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, or therefore the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Paul, Paul's not saying just come and pray about it and then try to get sleep. Take an Ambien, take a Tylenol PM. He, he's not saying to you know, pray and then keep worrying. He says pray and look what happens. And the God of peace, or the peace of God rather, the, God, the peace of God which surpasses all, all understanding will guard your hearts. That is to say, there's something that transforms the nature of the battle. If I'm wrestling and I'm anxious and I'm, I'm stressed or perplexed and worrying, I take those concerns, I express them to God, and what goes up must come down. I love that. I, I heard a coworker say as they were meeting with a person at Kroger, they, the, they asked the cashier how their day was, and the cashier said, It was great. You know, praises up, blessings down. <laughs> and I, I just, I thought it was so cute because, you know, it's, it's trite a little bit, but, uh, but it, it, it's so true that, that, that the way in which Christians are to keep their hearts, we're commanded to bring our emotional turmoil under the Lordship of Christ. We are commanded to bring our, cause, our, our concerns to the Lord and the peace of God will guard us that is to say, we must learn how to transcend the fight. You who are doing evangelism this year at, at Wright State and at opponents, you will become anxious for the seed which has been planted. You need to bring your concerns to the Lord and the, the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. So he commands them to bring these to the Lord and then he says, this will take place. And then he moves from the Concern of the heart to what is on their minds, um, the notion idea the notion of this idea is that I must channel just as much as I must bring heart to the Lord, I must channel my thoughts according to the dictates or the words of God himself. I must cause my thoughts, when I, whenever I notice them straying, I must cause them to come under the obedience of the gospel. He says in verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, I'm going to shorten this, true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's anything excellent or anything worthy of praise, think about these things. This is especially important in today's world, which in a second I can be listening to a voice or looking at a page of a voice that may or may not be of the Lord. I pull open my Apple News app and what do I see? Trump's screwed up again. That's what I see on my, I don't like Apple News anymore. It's, it's just, it's too caustic. Or China's printing more money. Or you know the, the, the oceans are filled with plastic already. It's too late. Global warming can't be stopped. Should we take care of the environment? Absolutely. But do I need to look at the things in the world, the broadcast messages that seem to just find their way to me, do I need to dwell on them? Or do I need to dwell on, with my mind, what is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent and worthy of praise or praiseworthy. I am commanded as a Christian by the writings of Paul, which are the word of God, to channel my thoughts in a particular way. Does this mean I dismiss the problems around me? No, but I do not dwell upon them in the way in which the world wishes me to dwell upon them. I answer those things according to the commandments of Christ and the word of God. That is, God's law word is the answer for the problems of the earth. And if I simply allow my mind to be swayed by what is ever on my Facebook feed or my Twitter feed, or for you younger than I, the Snapchat feed, um, then then I am opening myself up to not only just heart turmoil, but also turmoil of mind. I have the mind of Christ, and I should not allow that mind to be tampered with. It really is quite clear Paul is commanding them what to think about, and he makes no no apologies about that. Christians, therefore, must intentionally direct their thoughts upon those things which are excellent in Christ, for Christ is Lord over their minds. This is what Paul commends them to do. Paul then encourages them to imitate his walk, promising God's presence as the fruit of that imitation. Just as he said, give your concerns to the Lord and the peace of God will guard you, that that you no longer fight on the emotional level of your own heart and mind, but you express those to God and, and God's peace then becomes your shield. He then says, imitate this way of life and the God of peace will be with you. He commands them to do this, and then he gives a testimony of how he himself did that. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Some people, especially of, of uh, other branches of the church, say, well, it's very clear that we must be in communion with these Philippian Christians. Therefore, we, we will be able to learn from them, about what they learned and saw and heard because those were all life things seen in person. But interestingly enough, Paul then gives specific verses. He he then testifies quite clearly in the very next verses what he's talking about. He's not like talking about how you make your food that morning. He's not saying imitate the way in which I tied my sandals. He's saying, imitate the manner of life, the style of life, and then he begins to describe what exactly that was. Verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Keep a hold of that. They were concerned but had no opportunity. Now that I am, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. That is, Paul has learned a secret of Christian godliness. It it is a unique aspect of Christianity that it spreads among the poor of the earth, not because it promises them riches. Indeed, if it did, it would not work. The gospel would come in. It wouldn't work for a few years, it would be abandoned. And yet, Christianity has always thrived in every nation, especially those which are poor, because oftentimes poor people, although they are not inherently more righteous, they are less deluded by the pleasures and you know, wealth of the world. Therefore, he says, I've learned to be content. As in, they they sometimes have an easier way or an easier time at seeing through the very thin veil of earthly success, so to speak. So he says, I've learned to be content, that he's learned to be content in lack and interestingly enough, in great supply. Paul's rejoicing was in the Lord for the Lord supplied the concern and opportunity to the Philippians to supply for his needs. Do you remember what we said about Philippians 2? God is at work within you both to will that is to want to do it, and to work. He's expressing joy, Paul is expressing joy in the Lord because they have concern that regards the will and opportunity, that is the work. Paul's heart, therefore, doesn't rise or fall on what he does or doesn't have, but rather he is totally satisfied in Christ. This is what it means for Christians to be able to thrive in times of lack, and times of plenty, and indeed, Christ does want you, in, as well just as Paul did, to learn that secret. There will be times where you feel you are in lack, and there will be times in which you think to yourself in plenty. I love, I, one of my favorite verses in, in the book of Job is is when Job is talking, he's remembering about how the grace of God was over his head, and all my steps were bathed in butter. That poetry is so, I, I, I It's so beautiful because what he's expressing is the kind, favorable heart of the Father just as God is looking over Job's life and approving of his righteousness and how he carried himself. This is what it means for Christians to learn in times of lack and in times of plenty that there is a transcendent joy which surpasses circumstance on earth. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. It is very interesting that we oftentimes, especially in America, we are quick to judge or, or warn against the excesses of pleasure and the excesses of money. But we also do not warn against the wallowing in sorrow, which is easily... Uh, just as much of a temptation for Christians. Both circumstances, lack and supply, have their unique temptations, and God has grace for those seasons and circumstances. So he goes on to direct the, them to, uh, to consider how they might partner with him. Paul, if you read through the New Testament, has seen extreme swings of favor and lack of blessing and need. And yet, in every way, Paul was answered by God's grace. If you look at the book of Acts, Paul faces physical persecution, rejection of the gospel by entire towns, riots. I've never had a riot. I've had like a few people angry at me in person once or twice. Paul had an entire town rioting, trying to take him by force to the court, so they could kill him. Think about that. Think about that. Imagine going to downtown Courthouse Square, having the entire city of Dayton angry with you. Imagine that. So, I want to highlight this. I said it at the beginning, but look at what he says, how God has answered his supply, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. We often hear it quoted, verse 13 alone, and we take it to heart and we say, I can do it. And yet, interestingly, in the context of what Paul's talking about, it's a commendation to the Philippians for not waiting for God to answer Paul's need, but for them to step up to the plate, so to speak, to use a baseball reference. So I want to talk about the rare jewel of Christian charity in mission. That is, even to this day, it is rare for churches to be thoroughly invested in partnering with the gospel, and its spread in the world around them. Paul's commendation of the Philippians charity resolves a very subtle yet pernicious or malicious flaw of much Christian thinking towards missions and evangelism. This is especially susceptible if you grew up in what I might call a hyper-Calvinist mindset, although true Calvinism doesn't promote this idea. It is a very subtle way of thinking and yet it is very pernicious. It is malicious. It is destructive to think this way. And that sort of thinking goes like this. Well, if God is sovereign and he is electing those who come to faith, then they're going to get saved whether I share the gospel or not because God's will is always done. This is spiritual immaturity and folly, but oftentimes we are comfortable with that sort of thought. I don't really need to expend myself in sharing the gospel. God has other people, other places who will do that work. And very interestingly, Paul actually is arguing the complete opposite. He's saying, I could have done it in the grace of God, yet you answered that. And then he goes on to describe the Philippians' willingness, voluntary willingness, because of the grace of God that was work within, at work within their church, to answer Paul's need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That is, God was going to meet his need anyway, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. The Philippians did not presume that God's supply of Paul's needs relieved them of their duty to participate. I want you to think very very closely about this. The Philippians did not presume that because God was going to supply Paul's needs anyway, That they were relieved of their duty to participate in the mission. That is, there is something about the way that Paul is talking to them in chapter 2. God is at work within you to will and to work. That those two sides of the coin are answered by God himself. Nevertheless, they are to join in. Though God strengthens Paul from time to time, he did it through the Philippian church. I think this is exactly what he's commending them about. And, in, and indeed, as we're going to see in the next few verses, he's wanting to instill this into their culture and DNA such that it would never be lost. Paul then reveals how rare concern and opportunity meet in the early Christian church. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, only you. Interestingly enough, The giving, we we, we fear the giving and therefore we short circuit the receiving. And I'm not talking about checks in the mail. Verse 16, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. They did it the first time. They did it again. And look at, we're going to see in just a moment. The Philippians refused to wait until others participated, but did what was right, seeing that they were able. That is, they had the opportunity, they had the ability to partner with Paul by giving him money so that he could continue to eat and to get transport to the various places he was going, so that he could spend his time as an apostle Sharing the gospel and establishing churches and guarding against heresy, Paul was fueled by them, and and I want you to see the Philippians did not wait until anyone else joined together. They did not establish the committee to fund Paul before funding Paul. They stepped up to the plate, although they had already given twice, they have sent another gift. Look at again in verse sixteen. In Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. That's one and two. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering and sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. I believe in the way that I'm counting it, it's right that they have sent him at least three separate occasions, money and needs, other other means by which he was able to continue the mission. Notice that what he says that they have sent him, they have not just sent him money or some form of gifts, which I would have presumed would be silver, gold, other precious stones, maybe uh, letters of commendation, some other things like that. P- perhaps they, there were tokens of fellowship and friendship that were given. There, there were probably were a lot of things that they gave in different type and quality. nevertheless, What they actually gave wasn't gold to Paul. It was a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. That through the act of giving gold, it became spiritual worship. That's an amazing idea. The Philippians' mission has borne fruit. That is, when Paul came to the city of Philippi, he began preaching the gospel. And after preaching the gospel things got really out of hand and he had to leave. But before he did have to leave, there was authentic fruit being born. It was being manifested. It was coming to fruition, so to speak. And that fruit has now been distributed just as a fruit has a seed within it. And that seed has been invested in the rest of Macedonia. Paul has demonstrated how their seed that was sown in this field has become seed to be sown in another field. The Philippian contribution to Paul's ministry, therefore, was pure worship to the living God. There is a reference to this in the Sunday school hour. We are to be kings and priests before our maker. And one of the interesting tasks of priests, the reason they exist, is to offer up praises to Yahweh himself. And this phrase, a pleasing aroma, is, is, is a direct reference to the book of Leviticus in which the Levites were to take the offering and they were to burn it on the offer until it was spent, until it was consumed. The burnt offering is more accurately called the ascension offering because as the animal who has been slain and cut apart is consumed, that flesh burns up in fire and it ascends in smoke to God. And it then becomes a pleasing aroma. But interestingly enough, before that can be a pleasing aroma, it has to first be cut and then burned before it can ascend. Not only has Paul been supplied, but these blessings will come down upon the Philippians as well. Unfortunately, those who preach Christ for their own gain pervert these words and pervert these scriptures to convince their people, or people they are listening to, not even their people, they try to abuse the flock of Christ and fleece them, steal money from them so that they themselves would be benefited. And they have no pure motive for asking for these things. And they do it to appeal to the greed that is still at work in some Christians' hearts. And they fall hook, line, and sinker, thinking that Christ died so that their checkbook might be padded. What Paul is talking about is not for just some sort of external blessing alone. I actually think what Paul is talking about is that as the Philippians send and invest in the mission of Paul, that God will meet their action with a response of preserving the Philippian church from error and causing them to be fruitful as well. That is to say, they're not giving to Paul so that they would get a a raise. They're giving to Paul so that God would preserve the fruit in their vineyard, that he would watch over their garden, and they would continue to be blessed. Read Read these verses in that context versus how it's often promoted in the prosperity teaching. And my God will supply every need of yours. What was the need of the Philippian church? To escape the persecution of the Roman world. To escape the Judaizing teaching at work in the Mediterranean of that day. To escape the indwelling corruption that existed in her members to continue to be a shining lamp that wouldn't burn out. Remember, if you read the book of Revelation, Christ's concern for the churches is that he would be the one who is trimming the light stands, that he would be filling the oil in the lamps. That's the concern. Those are the needs of the Philippian church, not to have extra money. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Look at the aim and goal of all of this activity. It is for God's glory. It is not for my success. It's not for your success. It's not that our name would be known as a good church in the city. It's not even that that God would be pleased to, to favor Paul. It doesn't say that he would have a great name, although by doing great things for Christ, he has an honorable name. Indeed, it's encoded in the scriptures. Nevertheless, the aim and goal for all of this is that God would be glorified and magnified. So, unlike the Philippians in the modern era, we today almost always have the opportunity. If Paul was writing this letter to the church in America, I think he would switch the words concern and opportunity. We do not always have the concern that they had. He says, you had the concern, but you had no opportunity. Now you have opportunity. I think in the modern era, as Christians in in the wealthiest country that has ever existed, that we all individually and culturally have ample opportunity. What we don't have from the Philippians is the concern that they had. So, I would encourage you, as our church, together corporately, enters a season of outreach, I would ask you to heed the words of Paul and reflect upon the issues, the concerns of your heart and your mind, which prevent you from engaging in mission. That is to say, there are things in life which become, that we, we, we amplify them in our mind and our hearts, and they become for us blocks between us and participating with the mission of Christ in the earth. I would call you to examine your heart and mind, examine what your life is directed on, to see, is there something which I am anxious about And I am not bringing in supplication to God. Is there something what I am thinking about that is neither true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, or excellent? And ought I not to bring those to the submission of the Lord Jesus? And also, I would call you, having done that, to then consider how you could join the effort of GCF in this season with your time, money, and talents. Uh, the way that we do evangelism and discipleship at the church, we need your money, but we need more than your money. We need your time. You, most, most Christians have extra money, and that's wonderful if you can give. It's no shame if you don't have extra money, but what is a more precious value and commodity, as Paul has talked about in his letters, I was willing to be poured out as a drink offering upon your offering. That is, your time is much more important than your money. Because without time, there can't, with money there can be supply of need, but with time there is supply of emotional life. That is, God has created men and women in such a way that there is a deep need of community. And if I were to, to gauge what the chief need in our culture is, it's not for the gospel to have any better websites or presentations or or you know, slideshows, what we need is authentic Christian life together. And so much more than your money, I'm asking for your time and your talents. Many of you have talents that are not being used in any way for Christ. Some of you are graphic designers. Some of you are able to make music. Some of you are able to understand finances. Some of you are able to understand how to communicate and present. Some of you are called to master communication and to learn how to preach your talents must be given up to the Lord Jesus. And I, I would call you in this season to really examine what am I thinking about? What, am I, what is my heart concerned with that is pre- preventing me from joining in a greater way? And to so those of you who've already done this, I would call you to remind yourselves of how you're to do this. You're do the, to do this not for the glory of Rock Campus Fellowship, not even for the glory of Grace Christian Fellowship, to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that a mighty spirit of grace would come upon us, that your Holy Spirit would be present in this season. We do ask, Lord, that you would supply our needs. But more than that, Lord, that your name would be magnified on Wright State and in Ponents and in Dayton, Ohio and in Cedarville University, Lord, that your, your church would shine and indeed, Lord, for the other churches in this city as well, that you would allow us to reach these students and these neighborhoods that are in our midst. We pray, Lord, that you, through our action, would be pleased to exalt the name of Jesus and that many would come to life this year, that it would not take uh, a great uh, time, but uh, a way that they wouldn't spend any more time away from you than, than is absolutely necessary, that you would cause your gospel and your word to run swiftly and to be multiplied. Lord, we do ask that you would allow this to be a continuing mission, that it wouldn't just be a season, but that, that it would be the heritage of this congregation, and indeed even all of Dayton. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.